We consider this morning the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 12 through 31. Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 12 through 31. Let me read it for us this morning. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me? It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to go die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you communicate yourself through your word and through your spirit. Give us open ears and open hearts. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In this Lenten season, it is appropriate that we're reflecting on the passion narrative in the Gospel of Mark, the story of Jesus' suffering in this world. And this narrative will take us right up to Good Friday, and then we'll be poised to consider Mark's presentation of the resurrection on Easter. But today we look at the account of the Last Supper, which is also recounted in, Mar in Matthew and in Luke. And interestingly, in his account, Mark uses, again, the literary technique of a sandwich, which we saw last week. Last week, in the, with the account of the woman who anointed Jesus with that expensive perfume, was placed in a sandwich. It was sandwiched by the plot to kill Jesus in a way that highlighted the beauty of what this woman had done. And here, again, in the account of the Lord's Supper, we find that it's sandwiched between betrayal and denial. By this literary technique of a sandwich, Mark is showing us the contrast 
between the fidelity of Jesus and the infidelity of the disciples. The contrast between the self-sacrificial love of Jesus and the self-serving protection of the disciples. The contrast between the worthiness of Jesus and the unworthiness of the disciples. So Mark, I think, through the sandwich is giving us a picture of grace for the unworthy. During a conference on comparative religions a number of years ago in Britain, experts from around the world were debating. What belief was unique to the Christian faith? And some suggested that it was in the incarnation, and some suggested that it was the resurrection. And the debate went on and on and around and around, uh, as the story goes, until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and asked what the discussion was all about. When he heard they were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions, C.S. Lewis said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace, he said, is what makes Christianity absolutely unique. Theologian Wayne Grudem defines grace as God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. Grace means that God's goodness comes to us not because we deserve it, but as a sheer gift. And as C.S. Lewis says, I think this distinguishes Christianity from every other major religion. See, many other religions have a lot in common with Christianity. I mean, a lot of religions have a similar ethical code. They have a holy book or holy writings. There is a founding teacher, but they don't have the concept of grace. All the major religions can be boiled down to basically a work system, a performance-based system. You do good things, and you're essentially rewarded. You do bad things, and you're punished. Christianity alone dares offer God's love based not on performance, but on grace, which means that God's love is available to the unworthy and undeserving. Our passage, I would suggest to you, is about grace for the unworthy, and Mark gives us a very poignant picture of this. Jesus offering grace to the unworthy. I'd like to look at two things with you in these verses. How Jesus offers this grace, the middle part of the sandwich, and then to whom he offers it, the outer parts of this sandwich. So first, how he offers it. In the center of the sandwich, the middle part, verses 22 through 26, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper as a way of interpreting and remembering what he will do on the cross. And I just point out the context uh, for you. You heard it in Exodus 12. You heard it at the beginning of our passage. The time when Jesus initiates the Lord's Supper is during the Passover feast. And if you have not yet made spiritual connections for yourself between the Old Testament and the New Testament, listen to Alec Motier, an Old Testament professor, on what you might have heard if you asked an Israelite in Exodus for their testimony. He says, this is what an Israelite might have said to you. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death. But our mediator... The one who stands between us and God came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and he led us out. Now we're on the way to the promised land. We're not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us. And through blood sacrifice, we also have his presence in our midst. So he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. And hopefully that helps you to begin making these connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And another one is the Passover feast. 
This Passover feast, if you're not familiar with it, was a meal to remember how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. When the angel passed over the homes that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and spared the firstborn. The Passover feast was the holiest festival of the Jewish year. It could only be celebrated in Jerusalem. So crowds, hundreds, thousands descended on the city of Jerusalem during this festival. You can imagine the noise and the congestion which made it hard to find a place to celebrate the Passover feast, which is why Jesus sent two disciples ahead to make preparations. We learn of those preparations in verses 12 through 15. It seems like Jesus had a good friend who knew him as the teacher, who would be comfortable with Jesus saying, is my guest room ready? The Passover feast itself was a family meal, which started after sundown and lasted oftentimes until midnight. Mark doesn't give us details because his readers would have been familiar with this Passover meal. Passover meal is typically divided into four parts. The first part was a blessing pronounced by the family head. And then the second part was a child would ask his parents or her parents, why is this meal different? Why is this day different than any other day? And the father would then recount the story of God's deliverance of his people. The third section was the father would pronounce the benediction over the, over the foods which represented slavery in Egypt, unleavened bread, bitter herbs, stewed fruit, roast lamb. And then after eating, the fourth part would be that the, the Passover meal would conclude near midnight with a singing of a psalm. And after every section of this Passover meal, a glass of wine, a cup of wine would be passed around to the family. This was a meal that remembered God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. And this is the meal that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples. He institutes the Lord's Supper in this context. Probably was in that third section because they're reclining and eating a meal together. And as they're eating, as the head of the family, Jesus breaks the bread and he says a blessing and he passes around a cup of wine. So these weren't new elements, especially in the context of a Passover feast. But Jesus is investing them with new meaning. He is pointing out that the Passover meal in the Old Testament is fulfilled in him, in his death. You you know, in this meal, there's no mention of a Passover lamb. The reason why is because Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is instituting a new meal, invested with meaning in in these symbols. No, No bitter herbs, but bread and cup. And he institutes these new symbols or gives them new meaning. He takes, gives thanks, uh, and breaks the bread, and he gives it to his disciples and says, take it, this is my body. The question is, what does he mean by that? When Jesus takes the bread and says, this is my body, what does he mean? Those are some of the most contested words in the the history of the church. Uh, Roman Catholic theology would say that when Jesus says, this is my body, it becomes his body. Um, and uh, in substance, Protestants would say, no, Jesus is speaking symbolically here. And Jesus says, I am the vine. He doesn't mean I'm literally the vine. He's speaking metaphorically. And in the same way, at this first celebration of the Lord's Supper, when he has bread in his hands, and he says, this is my body. It's not, this is literally my body. It's symbolically, it represents my body. Jesus associates the bread with his body. And when he says it's broken, it, it's a symbol of his death. Jesus is giving his disciples a picture of what is going to happen to him in the broken bread. 
when he gives it to them to eat, it is a way of participating in his death. When we eat bread, it, it, it nourishes us. It, it becomes part of us. And Jesus is giving uh, his followers this meal by which they can participate in the benefits and re re receive the benefits of his death on the cross. When Jesus takes the cup and says, this cup is the blood of the covenant poured out for many, what does he mean by that? Again, I think it's symbolic language. It's symbolic of the blood of the covenant. Disciples would have immediately thought of the blood of the Old Testament covenant, that covenant that God established with Moses, where the blood of sacrificed animals would, would cover the sins of his people. And so when Moses sprinkled blood on the people, the, the blood of, again, sacrificed animals, their sins would be forgiven. Because the Hebrews viewed the life of the creature as in the blood. That's the significance of the blood. It, it signifies, it represents the life of a creature. So visually, the people were being, were, were being taught that the cost of forgiveness is a substitute life. Their sins to be forgiven requires substitutionary atonement. So when Jesus says, this cup represents my blood poured out, it's a picture again of his death. The new covenant established in his blood. The fulfillment of all those sacrificed animals, those are placeholders, representing Jesus to come, the true lamb, the true blood that would forgive our sins. So that forgiveness of sins is now not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the blood of Jesus. The bread and the cup, then, are visual aids demonstrating Jesus' death as a substitutionary atonement and a means that we participate in his death and the benefits of his death flow to us. Now, I know what someone's thinking at this point. If you're new to all this, you're thinking, what kind of God would require a bloody sacrifice? Right? In 2023, this sounds primitive and bloodthirsty. Like, why can't God just love and forgive without a sacrifice? There are many ways to answer this question, but here's one way. as pointed out to me by Tim Keller. He makes this point is that, that, that all real love involves a substitutionary sacrifice. See, whenever you love someone that is battling serious hurt or brokenness or guilt, or if they have a serious physical condition, there, there will be a substitutionary sacrifice. Now, of course, if you love someone that has their life together and has no personal struggles or problems, then that love will cost you nothing. And there are maybe five people like that in the metro New York area. Go find them and befriend them. But if you love someone who has needs and problems and issues, right, like all of us, love will call for substitution and sacrifice. Because what does that mean? So if you love that person or someone loves us as that person, you will take on their problems on yourself. In some measure, you'll take their needs on yourself. You, you can't lift them up without yourself going down. You can't, there's a sense in which you can't fill them out without yourself being emptied. What qualifies you come to this meal is not your self-sufficiency, but an admission of your lack of sufficiency.
some now, so no doubt will be turned off by a meal of grace. There will be some that always say, I don't need charity. Thanks a lot for the offer, but I don't need charity. I can pay my own way. And you'll never come to Christ until you recognize your need of grace. Some, of course, will receive this gladly because they've recognized their need for grace. Because there is a recognition that, that God can transform people through his grace. Cowards become courageous as a result of grace. That's what happened to the disciples. They were all cowards and became the most courageous men. My friends, if you come to Jesus by faith, this meal of grace for the unworthy can transform you. You can rest in the security of Jesus' grace. You don't have to perform. You don't have to prove yourself to Jesus. You don't have to work so hard to put together the perfect resume and the perfect record to be accepted by Jesus. See, Jesus knows you will let him down. He knows it. And he loves you anyway. And he'll never let you down. Our status at this table is based not on your commitment to Christ, but on Christ's commitment to you. So you can rest in the security of Jesus Christ. You can rest in the security of his love. See, what is it like when someone loves you? When, when someone sees you all the way to the bottom, sees everything about you, all your ugliness, sees you all the way to the bottom and still loves you, that's a wonderful thing because you're secure. There's nothing you can do that, make, that will make them love you more. And there's nothing that you can do that will make them love you less. It's, it's unconditional love. They've seen you all the way to the bottom and still love you. And that's the way Jesus loves us. And we can rest secure in his love. And then we can request, we can rest in the security of hope. Jesus says here, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day. Matthew says, when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. You know what that is? That's Jesus' vow to get his disciples to the messianic banquet. It's a vow. I'm not going to drink again until I get you, his disciples, the messianic banquet of the Lamb. My friends, that is deep hope because it means that if you are a disciple of Jesus, no matter how hard your life is, no matter how, how much of a mess your life is right now, there is a great banquet coming, a great feast, and Jesus has reserved a seat for you at his table. And so the next time you're in the middle of despair or darkness or sadness, tell yourself this. There is a great feast coming, and I have a seat reserved for me. Jesus offers grace to the unworthy. Amazing. Astounding. It makes Christianity different from all the other major religions, and it is this grace that transforms us. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you offer grace to the unworthy. We thank you that you spread this table at the cost of your own body and blood, of great cost yourself, but you make it cost-free to us. Thank you that all we need to come to this table is need, an acknowledgement of our need for you and for grace. Help us to take that in and be transformed by this grace. 
This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.